you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Pray with me. Lord, we desperately want to hear from you tonight, and so I ask just simply that you would speak in a clear and a powerful way. God, remove me from the equation here. We want to hear from you. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, As we've seen um, from looking um, in Acts, and in Acts 4 in particular, this, this early church has been described as having one heart and one soul or one mind. Um, Luke tells us that there has been no needy people among them. But now we have a threat against both of those things, the unity and the needs. Um, disunity has entered into the church and some of the poor people are being neglected. Um, this was the first real large-scale conflict problem to hit the early church. Um, Now, I grew up in a church that was chronically in conflict. Um, There was always some grumbling on, there was always some crisis going on, and so the the solution was usually to get rid of the pastor. And so um, I can remember having at least five different senior pastors just during the time that I was kind of in elementary school and junior high. And so you you can call this message self-preservation, um, or just uh, good exegesis, but, 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 but we're going to go a different route tonight and talk about what do we do when problems do arise up in the church? Because conflicts will arise. Um, anytime there is growth, there is going to be conflict. Um, Lauren and I dated for six years before we got married, and believe it or not, in these six years we dated, we never fought, ever. Um, we got married, and for our um, first, gosh, I guess six, seven, seven years of marriage, we did not have a fight. And then our family grew by one. 
Um, we, we, had, we had a girl, Caroline, and, and it is amazing. We, just, we just grew one by one little eight pound, six ounce, you know, little body, and yet we began to fight. Conflict all of a sudden just, just grew in our marriage because you don't know what you're doing. You don't have any sleep. This is a, it's a new experience. It's an exciting experience, but man, those things, that dynamic there, it just leads to conflict. Um, those of you who have kids know what I'm talking about. When, when you begin to grow, you begin to fight. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're going to the wrong church and go someplace else because we, we have problems and sin here. Um, one of my neighbors, uh, they were struggling in their marriage and, and they came over and they said, we've decided to have a child. I was like, why? And they said, well, to grow us closer together. I was like, you are fools, you know, you are fools. It will be a blessing, it will be a joy, but you are going to have so much more conflict as your family grows. Growth brings an excitement, it brings energy, but it brings a whole new set of problems. And what you have is this church growing from infancy to all of a sudden 3,000, all of a sudden 8,000. I mean, it's just exploding in growth, and it's new, it's exciting, it's a great, but all of a sudden, you know, the apostles are looking around, it's like, we're, we're like this huge megachurch. Where's the infrastructure? What, what, what are we going to do? And, and problems begin arising. It's only natural that that happens. And in this story, we see a problem arise, and this threatens the early church. Um, actually, there's, there's two threats to the church at this point. There's the problem itself, the neglect of widows, and the other threat is, how are they going to answer this problem? How are they going to respond? These were serious threats that could have torn Christianity apart from the start. And I think one of the reasons that Luke records this for us is so that we can learn how we are as a church to deal with conflict. The situation here is that um, the widows of Greek-speaking Jews are being neglected. Um, at this time in history, you had um, these, these Greek-speaking Jews moving back into Jerusalem um, and as a result, they're not as well established, they're not as well connected, they don't have as much family there in the city, and so when needs arise, some of them are beginning to fall through the cracks. I don't think this was outright neglect, I don't think this was intentional, I think this just happened. And this was a problem because the church knew its calling, and one of its calling is to take care of of widows and orphans. You know, even James says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction. If you read through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, um, if you ever want to see God get really angry, just watch what happens when, when Israel or, or, or other people begin neglecting widows. Widows have a special place in his heart. Um, I didn't really understand this until my mom became a widow about 20 years ago. Um, and I got to see um, up close that emotional damage that happened there. My mom cried every day for years after losing her husband. What used to be, um, after my dad died, what, what used to be just kind of easy daily decisions... All of a sudden, she was paralyzed, and she was just, she was crippled. She couldn't make even the most basic, easy decision. She was scared all of the time. Now she's, she's in a house, and she's all by herself. Who's going to protect her? 
The dynamics of all of her friendships changed, you know, because she used to always go out with couples, and now she just felt weird just being by herself and going out with another couple, and, and just everything about her life just kind of changed and it imploded when she became a widow. And this was even more so in the first century, because not, not only did they have the same kind of emotional um, wreckage that happened when their husband died, but they didn't have things like life insurance that could at least help provide for you. So you wouldn't have to worry about money if you lost your husband. If you lost your husband, money became a huge concern. Who was going to take care of you, especially if you didn't have any family there that would, that would take you in? And so there are many widows here living in deep emotional and physical poverty. And they're trying to scrape by however they could. And so... The early church recognized this, and because of this, they set up a daily distribution of help for the widows, and likely for all the poor. Um, early on, we, we, we see this in Acts. We see how the early church was very organized in the way that they would give. Um, we've already looked at chapter 4 when it said that they, um, they would come and they would sell their possessions and that... They would lay the proceeds of those possessions down at the apostles' feet. And we saw that also in Acts 5. Um, and, and I think what you're seeing here is the early church, they knew they were supposed to take care of needs, but they didn't just give money to everybody. They didn't just let people take advantage of them. They were, they, they were wise in how they used their resources. They set up a structure, and so they, they laid the money at the apostles' feet to godly men, Wise men, and they said, we, we trust you now to distribute our resources, to look at the needs there, figure out what's a real need, what's not a real need, and give out our resources. And you see that very early in the church. And the reason they had to set up that then is the same reason we set that up now is because there are some people who will take advantage of Christians' generosity. And so you have to be wise in how you give. Um, I, I read... As I was studying for this, uh, there was an old rabbinical writing that talks about the generosity of these early Jewish Christians. And he says, we should give, but let the money sweat in your hands. And I love that. Let the money sweat in your hands. And what he meant is you hold on to the money tightly. You don't just start throwing it away. And you discern. You discern before you give. And you, and you saw the early Christians modeling this. They gave the money to men who then gave it to others. And we, we try to model this at the church, all the money that you give in the offering you know, here. Um, basically, it goes to the elders and to our missions team, and we look at all the needs there, and we try to wisely then give. And so we can look, and if there is a widow who needs her utility bills paid for, we can check out the situation, we can pay for that. If there's Cornerstone who needs new Bibles for their children, we could look at that and we say, yes, okay, we'll buy new Bibles for the children. If there are some missionaries here who need help in planning the church, we could look at that and think, yes, that's a genuine need, and we could take care of that, and we can use our resources in a wise way. And so you can, you can put a good system, and I think they had a pretty good system in place. I think we have a pretty good system in place. But when growth starts happening, even... Through the best system, people can fall through the cracks. And not everybody's going to be happy. And here you have these Greek-speaking Jews complaining that their widows were not being taken care of. And this is a real problem. So the apostles gather everyone together, 
And look what they say in verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now this seems like somewhat of a defensive answer that they give. I think it is a defensive answer. I think the apostles were probably approached and asked, said, hey, some people are being neglected. Why don't you take care of this? Why don't you do this? And that's why they, they answer, but, but it, is not, it is not right for us to do this. I know you're asking us to do this, but it's not right for us to do this. They're, they're defending their position here. And when the apostles give this answer here, what they're doing is proclaiming the absolute utter importance of the word of God to church life. The proclaimed word of God is central for a church. Above all else, they they are not putting down taking care of widows. They are not putting down waiting on tables. What they are doing is they are exalting the position of proclaiming the word, studying the word, and prayer. It's central. And they realize that this is a huge decision and that really the entire church hangs in balance with how they decide to go forward. If the disciples had answered this way, you know what, you're right. You're right. Um, It's a problem. God's called us to take care of the widows. We need to take care of the widows. So I know we can't can't do everything, so we're just going to put aside prayer and ministry of the word to take care of this real and this pressing need before us. If they had decided to do this, they would have been proclaiming at the heart of the church is social justice. The heart of who we are is doing good works. That's the very foundation of who we are. That's the heart of who we are. And if they had chosen this to be the route, well, for one, they wouldn't have been persecuted. They would have probably been embraced by the church or embraced by the world. And they would have done a whole lot of good. They really, I mean, if they had made that, this is the core of who we are, social justice, helping people out, they would have done so much good. But they would have lost their soul. They would have absolutely lost their soul. And you can see this today. You can see churches that that preach social justice so much to the exclusion of the gospel. All about good works, good works, good works. And and without the ministry of the word and without the gospel being proclaimed, those good works are no longer an outpouring or an outworking of the salvation God has given us. They now become the means to which we try to achieve salvation. We just have to keep doing good works, doing good works, and then God will love us. Then we are saved. And the apostles saw that danger and they said, no, we have to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer above all else. The thing that's so difficult about the decisions that the apostles have to make here is that the church really does need to be a champion for social justice. We do. We need 
to be a champion for social justice. We are called to to care for the widow, to care for the orphan, to care for the poor and the oppressed. That is part of our calling. And so the choice presented before the apostles isn't between something good and something bad. It's between something good and something good. That's their choice. And it's choices like that that have always wrecked and ruined the church. It's never usually between something good and bad. It's not, hey, you either uh, worship Satan, you know, or, or, or worship the Lord here and be a minister to the word. It's not that clear. It's like, here's something really good, and here's something really good. Good things are what threaten the church. It's what threatens us. Uh, many years ago, um, I was in seminary class. It was my uh, second semester of taking Greek. And I will always remember this class. Ch- changed my life. Greek class, of, of all things. Um, definitely changed the way I approached all of seminary. Um, my professor, Dr. Kinman, he was... Uh, he was writing on the board. We were studying participles at the time. And so he is parsing some participle. And all of a sudden he just stops. Puts his uh, marker down. Turns around. Looks at us and says. Did you know that just over three miles away from here. Where you're standing right now. Just over three miles. There is an abortion clinic. And there are women lined up right now trying to decide if they should abort their baby or not. And here you are studying Greek. Like, what in the world was that for? I mean, we're all just absolutely shocked that Killer Kinman is what we called him. And, and, and so he, he continues to parse his participle and he turns back around and he says, you know what? I'm assuming that you are all here studying the Word of God because God has called you here. Because you believe that this is the most important thing you can be doing. It better be. That better be the reason you are here and not there. So if you're here, be all here. And I tell you, when, once he started partisan, I was like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm zoned in. I'm studying. Because he's right. There's good and there's good. That's what you're choosing between. But God has called, he, he called me to be a minister of the word. Therefore, I have to devote myself to the, to the understanding and to the study of this word and to prayerfully going through it so I can teach others. And that is the most important task that I have. When confronted with a similar decision, the apostles saw that the Study and the proclamation of God's word was so important that it required all of their time and all of their effort. They they could not have any divided hearts or any divided energies when it came to this. They needed to be freed up from other good demands that were being pressed upon them so they could do this. They realized that the word of God and prayer had to be the foundation on this, of this church. And so here we see the primacy of the word of God that it's to have in our midst. Um, one of the things that just kind of struck me as I'm looking at this is, I mean, the apostles are saying this. 
I'm thinking, didn't they already have a pretty good grasp of Scripture? Didn't they already have a pretty good understanding of the Word of God? I mean, Jesus taught them three years, Pentecost, Holy Spirit in them in a mighty way. Luke 24 says that Jesus opened up their minds to understand the Scriptures. And yet, despite all of that, they said, you know what? We still need to dedicate ourselves to a prayerful study and proclamation of the Word. It's that foundational. The church rests upon this. That's why I believe it's right for the church to to pay certain elders, teaching elders, to devote themselves to the study of God's word. I I thank you all for allowing me to do that, for for paying my salary. I realize, you know what, you could take my salary and you can meet a lot of the needs in Woodlawn. I, I realize that. But I think it's right. I do think it's right to set aside and to pay for a minister to study prayerfully study and to be shaped by the Word of God so he can proclaim it. I mean, this, this past week, um, I think it was, was either Tuesday or Wednesday, I got to read through the rest of Acts 6, Stephen's speech, which we're going to look at next week, and I read it over, and I read it over, and I read it over, and I got to read it over, and I thought, I get paid to do this, <laughs> to just be shaped by the text. And then I hope you get to enjoy the fruits of that next week. It's needed. It's foundational for the church. But let me be crystal clear. That does not excuse anyone here from your calling or our calling as a church to help the widow, to help the oppressed. We're called to do that. Let's look how the apostles fulfilled this calling. Verse 3. It says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I love it that when the apostles were confronted with this problem, they didn't say, all right, all right, what we need is a better system. We need a better structure. We need a better program. They said, no, you know what we need? We need people. We need people full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And that's what, we, that's what we want to pick. And we want to get people to handle this. As I was studying this, I was reminded um, an author, E.M. Bounds, he, he's written several things on prayer. But a quote that he had, um, let me just read it to you. It says, what the world needs is not more machinery or more novel methods but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer. The solution is to get men full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit and let them run with it. And so they picked seven men. Um, If you look at the the names of all these seven men, um, something might stand out to you. They're, They're all Greek names. They're all Hellenist. That they pick. Um, and I find this somewhat funny, um, somewhat wise as, as well. Not somewhat wise, really wise. Um, that this is what the apostles did. You have the Hellenist coming to them and complaining. We've got this problem. Our widows aren't being met. And, he, and, and the apostles say, you're right. You've got a problem. Pick out seven men and deal with it. That's their advice. Pick out, and so they picked out seven men from among themselves, seven Hellenists. They were like, you know the problem. You're acquainted with the problem better than anybody else. 
Now go. Choose seven men from among yourselves and take care of it. And that's how they dealt with the problems with the church. Problems came before them. They said, that's great. No one's more qualified to deal with this than you. Pick seven people full of the Holy Spirit. Take care of this. And they went back to praying and they went back to preaching. It's, it's brilliant. It also really cuts down on the amount of people that are going to come up to me after the service and tell me the things that we need to be doing. You know, people come, we need to start, you know, a Frisbee league. That's great. Go with it. Because I'm not going to devote my time and my energy to like setting up Frisbee, but you are probably gifted in that. You know, I, I remember um, uh, David Fleming came up to me years ago and said, you know, I really think we should start a choir. And I was like, that's great. No one's better for it than you. Go. And nobody, I mean, can you imagine me? I'm really, I mean, really. I would do a horrible job leading a choir and I would do a horrible job preaching at the same time if I tried to combine those things. But instead we say, no, you're full of wisdom, you're full of the spirit, you've got that passion, you see the need. Do that. I have to keep the focus here on the ministry of the word and prayer. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I find it very interesting that up to this point in Acts, we have only heard about the church increasing. Um, you hear phrases like, and the Lord added, to, added that day about 3,000 souls. Or the Lord added to their number day by day. And it's always the Lord adding People or the Lord adding souls. And you have all of that all the way up through Acts until you get here. Here it says, the word of God continued to increase. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And so what now you're seeing here, because this is the way they went forward with that, with that crisis, with that threat, and they decided, no, we will not compromise on the preached word, the studying of the word, the prayerfully going through the word. That will not be compromised, but we will also do this. Because of their dedication to the word of God, it says that both increase. They grew in depth and they grew in width. I pray that the Lord would give us such wisdom. It's been encouraging for me to see just even over the last few weeks how our church has been growing and I realize with that will come difficulties and will come problems. I realize that you're going to come up to me and you're going to want me to probably do everything because some of you probably grew up in a, um, a southern church culture um, in which the pastor was supposed to do everything. Everything. I grew up in that culture. I mean, that's why when I said we had a church that was chronically in conflict, we're like, well, this church isn't a good enough preacher. I mean, he's a really good pastor. You know, he takes care of people, does the hospital visits. He's not a good enough preacher. Let's get rid of him. We bring in a fantastic preacher. Like, you know what? He's really not that good with people. Let's get rid of him. Oh, we need somebody who's a little more organized. Yes, you know, he's a good preacher. We wanted everything. We wanted Jesus is what we wanted. We wanted Jesus to come with every gift. I don't have to tell you I'm not Jesus. No pastor is. What we want to be committed to as a church is the word of God and prayer as our foundation. And the outflowing of that, the outworking of that, will be us pouring into our community, pouring into the widows, 
to the poor and to the oppressed because the Lord Jesus has so moved us to do so. Pray with me. Our Father, I actually find great comfort in knowing that there there were problems in the early church. That there's never been a perfect church. Never once has any group of people rested on their own righteousness. And so, God, we rest on your righteousness. We realize that ours is filthy rags, that the best obedience, our best works that we do, dares not appear before your throne. But our faith in Jesus is what saves us. Lord, I pray that you would press that in on us in this moment at this time. I pray we would be a church that prays, prayerfully studies your word, and we serve the community around us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.